When Ezra and the exiles returned to Judea from Babylon in about the 4th century B.C., heavy emphasis began to be placed on the teaching of the Word of God. At that time, and the reason I mentioned Ezra and the exiles is we believe that is when began the synagogue system. That then scattered throughout Judea, And Samaria, synagogues began to pop up. And then even in the diaspora, there began to be synagogues. These were not many temples. There were no sacrifices or offerings made at the synagogue. In fact, synagogue simply means meeting place. Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 says, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. And so there is a a school of thought that I subscribe to that Ezra kicked that off and they began to have these meeting places where the law, where the Word of God could be studied and poured over and considered. It's a very Jewish idea. And it's a very Greek word. In fact, the word comes directly out of the Greek, synagogue, synagogue. And again, it means meeting place. Meeting houses where the people could gather. They could gather for study. Each synagogue had an ark, that is a box that would contain scrolls of Torah law, as well as the prophets and the Psalms, and and they would read from these. But these meeting houses were also for assembling, they were for gatherings, they were for fellowships. Our churches now, our church buildings are based off that whole idea of the synagogue, of the meeting house. Modern Jews retranslated it. So in Hebrew today, they wouldn't say synagogue, that's Greek. They would say Bet Knesset, house of meeting. You've heard of the Knesset in Israel. That's the Israeli parliament. It's just the meeting house. That's what the word means. In Jerusalem, the earliest Christians, they met, you know this, in the temple, and they met in homes. Day by day, Acts 2.46, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having the favor of all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So, in the temple and in homes. It wasn't either or, it was both and. Right? But as the gospel grew beyond Jerusalem, it was taught primarily, especially in the early church, in the Synagogues. That's where it was taken. You would say, well, weren't the synagogues Jewish? Yes, and so was the church. And so were believers. Early believers understanding, like Jacob, understanding Christ is the Messiah. Israel's Messiah. Messiah is a very Jewish idea. A very Hebrew scripture concept. But the synagogue, that was the place where, where the teaching happened. Early on, Acts chapter 13 verse 5 tells us when Paul and Barnabas reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. And from there, if you continue to track it through the book of Acts, you see in Pisidian Antioch, in Iconium, in Thessalonica, in Berea, in Athens, in Corinth, all the way to Ephesus, in every single town, the first place that Paul went, though he was the apostle to the Gentiles, he went to the synagogue. And the teaching took place in the synagogue. Acts 17, verse 17 tells us, and here's where we start to see a little bit of a shift. He was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. And in the marketplace. Every day with those who happened to be present. Now can anyone recall the name of the first non-synagogue meeting house that is mentioned in the New Testament? 
It's called the School of Tyrannus. It was a pagan philosopher's school. And Paul realized that he could use this during the day, during the heat of the day, when no one wanted to be there anyway. He could use it, kind of rent it out for times of teaching and gathering. And so Acts 19 verse 9 said, Some were becoming hardened and disobedient and speaking evil of the way before the people. And he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Here's the point I'm getting at, though. Whether it's a synagogue or a church building or a temple, it doesn't matter where or when, but why and how we meet. didn't matter if they were in the synagogue, in a home, in the temple, or in the school of Tyrannus. Frankly, what mattered was what was being taught. Who was gathering there? Why were the people coming together in the first place? And so for nearly 2,000 years now, and you know this, Christians have met in chapels, in catacombs, in cathedrals. We've met in basilicas and buildings and sometimes even barns. It matters not where. Because the church is not naves and, and chancels and stained glass and steeples. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And that's marvelous to me because the church is not something that can be destroyed. It's not a building that can be burned down or taken apart stone by stone, even as the temple was in Jerusalem. We are, as you know, the church. And the church is built person by person by person. The ecclesia, the assembly, the called and the consecrated by Christ. You know what that means? It means everyone's invited. The invitation has gone out to the entire world. There is no favoritism in the assembly of believers. And note that. We're going to talk about three primary areas tonight. And that's number one. There is no favoritism in the call of God, in the assembly, in the fellowship. No favoritism. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with personal favoritism. Don't hold your faith that way. If a man comes into your assembly, the word is sunaguge, that is synagogue, if he comes into your meeting house with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Favoritism in the fellowship. He begins, and I love this, with do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Hey, there's only one favorite among Christians, and that is Jesus. He's the favorite, and then we just love each other. He's the one that matters. He's the one we glorify. He's the one we are impressed by. And then we're not impressed with each other. We just love each other. We don't look at each other as greater than or lesser than ourselves, or at least we shouldn't. We look at each other as fellow brothers and sisters of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, who is our favorite. He's in first position. And you know what? When we keep Him in first position, it keeps everything else in perspective. When we start to forget that Jesus is in first position, and we begin to slide into that place ourselves, then everything gets out of whack. Or if we tend to put someone else in that place, 
Maybe a pastor, maybe a shepherd, maybe, maybe a friend that you just think, oh, this person is so together. Maybe it's a Christian artist or a speaker out there that you'll look at and think, oh, wow, impressive, careful. When we put other people in first place, things get messed up. And we begin to play that game of favoritism. No, we worship Jesus and then we welcome all who desire to know and worship Him. And that's, that's the way to approach. The worship of Jesus allows us to reject partiality. Not to play favorites in the synagogue or the meeting house or the assembly of all who follow Him. And that's hard to do. Why is it so hard not to play favorites? Because frankly, people are weird. You know it. There are those that you relate to, and they're not so weird. But then there's everybody else. You see that guy when he came in? Who wears a bright neon pink sweatshirt? I mean, things like that. Just weirdness. Strangeness. Every ministry I've been involved in, God has brought weird people. Now, none of you. And Wednesday night is the non-weird meeting night. But Sunday morning, have you looked around? That's a weird bunch of people here. I'm totally kidding. Truly, look in the mirror. We're all a little weird. But we have this sense of, man, I I like those people who I get, and I enjoy those people who have the same interests as I do, and, and those with whom I share affinity. But then there's all those other people out there. And, um... Well, it's great. I'm glad they're here, but I don't really want to go out of my way for them. I'm playing favorites. I'm playing partiality. Hey, no problem having our closer friends within a fellowship. We should and we do. Those who we do like to hang out with and we do enjoy. That's fine. But when we start to play favorites, it's a problem. In fact, it's a big problem. As Jacob will tell us, we need faith. To handle this issue. He says in verse 5, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? Think about God's choice. In fact, listen to the way Paul put it, 1 Corinthians 1.26, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world. Us. To shame the wise. He has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Here's the problem. Favoritism feeds my pride. When I play partiality, exclusivity, it breeds self-importance. These are my people. These are those that I have chosen and I have now accepted. It develops a false sense of hierarchy in the assembly. Be it the synagogue or the basilica or just the meeting house. When we start to play favorites, we start to put people in different levels of spirituality or righteousness or or organization. This is especially important for leaders in a church situation. Because it's very easy for those who lead to start to think a little more highly of themselves. Those of you who lead with our high school group, for example, you might start to think of yourself as, you know, we're leading these, these kids. 
We're teaching them. And so I'm on this level and they're on that level. Guess what? Not in the eyes of Jesus. Or those who lead in this fellowship. You know? Those shepherds among us, of which I are one, can start to think, oh, we're the ones who make the right decisions for the little people. That is so wrong. That is so off of Jesus. I think Yaakov may be recalling Jesus' teaching here. When he said in Luke 20, verse 46, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, but who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. Note that. Tuck that phrase away. Greater condemnation. Because someone else receives a greater condemnation as well. Someone else that we're going to find out about a little later in the chapter tonight. A greater condemnation. But that condemnation falls on those who seek to be favorite and who play favorites. And Yaakov apparently has noted this religious partiality is still going on even in the earliest days of the church. Why? Because it's a human problem. We all have this tendency. And it's worth recognizing. In verse 6 he continues, he says, You've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name or the good name or the noble name by which you have been called? What Yaakov does here is equates elitism and exclusivity to blasphemy. He's that close to saying it. And and he's going to be even more specific. Why would he say that? What is it about elitism that is blasphemous? It denies the fair name and nature of Jesus. It is not the way Jesus is. He doesn't play any favorites. You know what? You're his favorite. Period. And so am I. Every one of us. We've talked about this before. It's one of my favorite things about Jesus is that I am his favorite here tonight. Absolutely no question. But you can say the exact same thing. Right? We are all his favorite. Because he doesn't play favorites. Matthew chapter 11, verse 3. John the Baptist was struggling. He's in prison. Death row, really. He knows he's not long for the world. And he's starting to rethink everything. And in his flesh he begins to wonder, did I miss it? He sends off his disciples, dispatches them to Jesus. Go ask him. Are you the one or should we be looking for someone else? And Jesus answered, listen to this answer. Go report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And and the poor have the gospel preached to them. How do you know this guy's Messiah? Well, the blind are seen. Lame are walking. Deaf are hearing. All these miracles are taking place. But the key, and this is right out of Isaiah 61, is the poor are hearing the good news. I think that's something the Pharisees missed. Messiah is going to come preaching to the poor. Messiah is going to come caring about the downtrodden and the destitute. That is always proof that Jesus is present in the assembly of believers. What is? That the poor have the gospel preached to them. That those who are poor, whether it's poor in spirit, poor monetarily, 
poor emotionally. Whatever it is that the poor have the good news preached. Isaiah 61 verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. When that's happening, Jesus is there. Verse 8, If however you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. And by the way, verse 8 is proof that James sees the, the law of liberty as something greater than keeping the commandments. The royal law he talks about. The, the basilikos nomos. is where we get the word basilica. A basilica, a, a royal, a kingly uh, building. As the early basilicas or churches were called. The basilikos nomos, the royal law, you could call this the law of the basilica. Which is, love each other. Love each other. That to Yaakov, that to Jesus, is the royal law. Love God first, love each other second. And remember what Jesus said, on these two things hangs the entire law and the prophets. Go on though. If you show partiality, note this, you are committing sin. Those are strong words. We're not just talking about, ah, yeah, there's a little favoritism going on, a little clickishness, no big deal. No, no, it's a huge deal. Speaking by the Spirit of God, Yaakov pulls it out and says, this one's sin. It is sin before the Lord. He says, and you are convicted by law as transgressors. Boom. Anyone here been impartial your whole life? Do you realize the last time you were showing partiality or playing favorites, you were sinning? That's what the letter tells us. And he's spot on. And I read that and I think, wow, that's really discouraging. (laughs) Because I've done it. Recently. Every time I choose to to, to fellowship with one person over another because that other one's just annoying. But, you know, she's really a, a pleasure to talk to. I enjoy talking to him, but that guy, are you kidding me? When you find yourself, you ever do this? Test this in yourself. You ever find yourself in the foyer and you see someone coming and you quickly kind of shift over to another position? No. No. Of course you never do that. Neither do I. Now you all are going to be watching like crazy. Oh, I see Rick. He's doing it right now. It's sin. It's sin. And this is heavy duty. I'm thankful for the next couple of verses. Because then he goes on to say, verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one has become guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. (laughs) Now if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Anyone have a problem with that? (laughs) Understanding that? If you murder someone, you've transgressed the law. Guess what? In the same context of adultery and murder, he adds favoritism. All three are sinning. All three are violation of the law. Get this, when it comes to the perfect law of God, the law is singular in scope. Meaning what? Meaning violate one aspect of the law and you have violated the whole thing. 
The law was not written to pick and choose which aspect, which particular laws we obey and which we don't. It's not like the law that we have here in America. I've talked about speeding because it's such an easy target. But you know what? We choose whether or not we're going to obey that one. See any police around? No. Go! (laughs) But there are other laws. You know, of course, we're going to make sure we obey because the consequence is bigger. And we tend to evaluate law by consequence. Well, guess what? With the law of God, the consequence is if you don't keep every single nuance of the law, you're done. Because the whole law or nothing is what concerns God. The law is perfect. If you violate one, you violate the whole thing. It's not a scale of justice where mostly good behavior outweighs bad. No, one one bad behavior. And you're finished. There's no such thing as horseshoes and hand grenades when it comes to the law. You know, you just got to get close. <laughs> Verse 12. So speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. And this is where oh, I find so much peace in what James is saying. Partiality, adultery, murder, all of these things are sin, are law violational, but my judgment is from the law of freedom. Thank God I receive judgment from the law of grace. Verse 13, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's the royal law. That's the good law. The law that calls me to love God and love people is because He loved me first. And His grace is sufficient for all things. And I'm not worried about all the nuances of the law or missing that one because I was keeping all the others. But oh, I just, but I played favorites. You know, I am saved by grace. Thank God for that. It is the law of liberty. The law of grace. Romans 13 verse 10 says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So we don't play favoritism in the fellowship. And you know what when we do? We just need to be reminded. Thank God we are not being judged on that one violation because if we were, even when it comes to partiality, we would be in big trouble. But we're not. We have grace. And so in grace and by mercy... Let's do the same for everyone who walks into the assembly. Show grace and mercy and love. You know one thing that I've found when it comes to playing favorites? When I don't do it, when my radar is out for the weirdest person to walk in the door, again, I'm being facetious here, but when my radar is out to the person that no one's paying any attention to, and I go and engage with that person, 99.9% of the time, I am blessed. I'm just blessed. I I find myself in relationships I never would have been in had I made the choice myself. Now I know you're going to be thinking next time I say hi to you in the foyer, you're going to be lying going, hey, what's this really about, Rick? You just thought I was a little weird looking? No, no, no. But relationship, you know, it's all about relationship and that's what God does. 
calls us into relationship, every single one of us, no matter where we are on the spectrum of life, He loves and He wants to be in relationship with us. And He says, and by the way, I want you to do the same thing with each other. You just look out for anyone. If you don't know Him, go know Him. And don't show favoritism. Well, now we get into the section of the letter that has caused a lot of consternation for many people. Martin Luther was one of those. He hated this section of the letter of Yaakov. He said this ought to be tossed out. You know, he called it a straw man. It needs to be tossed into the dustbin. Because it was so frustrating. Because remember, Martin Luther was faith guy. His faith is all faith. And then here comes Yaakov with all this Works talk. Check it out. Verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Now, he's just coming right off of this favoritism issue. He's not just completely changing direction. He's saying, look, even in playing favorites, that's an issue. You say you have faith, but then you play favorites with people. Do you really have faith? You say you love God, but if you're not loving people, how can you say you love God? And this is the thrust of the entire letter. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Second thing to note here, not only is there to be no partiality in the fellowship, but there's no faith without works. There is no faith without works. This is that famous faith works section. And Yaakov is going to help us through this by breaking it down into three graphics. Okay, three graphics, and I'll give them to you up front. Food, freaks, and friends. Okay? Food, freaks, and friends. Number one, food. He says in verse 15, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace. Be warmed and filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. He's verging on the ridiculous here. I mean, you wouldn't wave a benevolent hand to a needy person and say, go, warm yourself, fill yourself, while you sit there in a parka with a burger in your hand. Well, I'm warm and toasty and well-fed, and you go do likewise. Go. Be filled. Stupid, give them something. You know, you wouldn't do that. And he's saying the same thing works with faith. You don't say, oh yeah, I have faith, but then you don't do anything. That makes no sense. Benevolence is bogus without action. That's faith without works. That's just dumb. Benevolence is bogus without action. Proverbs 32 verse 27 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. When it is your power to do so, do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give when you have it with you. And so in the same way, you don't tell someone be warmed and filled and not act on it any more than you say you have faith and don't act on it. By comparison, when is it that God gives of His goodness? Always. Always. There's never a time that God is not giving of His goodness. He's always giving His goodness. Matthew 5.45, Jesus says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Everyone gets the goodness of God. 
Believer or non-believer. You know, you don't have to be a believer in this world to experience the good things that come of the Father. He just is always giving good. And we see down in, or back in chapter 1 verse 17 that every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That's God. Constantly good, always giving. But get this, Yaakov's emphasis is on personal action. Faith in action. And notice it's not on doling out cash. So when he uses this example of food and benevolence and and warmth and giving it, give them what's necessary. Act on it. Do it. And I want to make kind of a side note point about this because typically when we hear the word benevolence in the church, what do we think of? Money. Cash. I'm going to go get some benevolence help. And what I'm saying is, I need the church to give me some cash. Or or in the, the finance meetings, we'll, we'll use the term benevolence. Yeah, we had a benevolence need. We all know what we're talking about. It was a check we had to write. For a certain amount of money, someone needed cash. Well, guess what? Cash is not benevolence, at least from a biblical perspective. I'll go a step further than this. I have yet to see anyone bought to the gospel. I've seen people brought to the gospel, but I've never seen someone given money and then therefore saved. It's a lie that we've kind of bought into in the church that, well, if we, if we help them out financially, well then perhaps they will come spiritually to Jesus. Never works. Ever. In fact, even in the giving of benevolence within the fellowship, and we will and we do because this is not my money or, or the shepherd's money, it's God's money. And we share all things in common. And we should care for each other, even financially. But I'll tell you, it's one of the toughest ministries in the church because whenever we give money, it always causes a discomfort. Some handle it fine. Others end up leaving the church eventually because it's just too weird. Cash is problematic. But when Yaakov here talks about feeding and clothing... Being filled and warmed, what he's describing there is personal involvement. Help them. What did Jesus say when all the people were gathered on the side of the Galilee and they were hungry and Peter and the apostles were saying, hey, we need to send them home so they can get something to eat. What did Jesus say? (laughs) You give them something to eat. Really? We got a kid here with a Taco Bell bag. You give them something? That's always God's attitude. You feed them. You clothe them. You help them out. Well, Lord, if I do anything more than write a check, I'm actually going to have to engage in a personal relationship. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we're talking about faith at work, right? So food is the first example. Verse 18 going on, he says, But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. And I, Yaakov says, will show you my faith by my works. The proof of my faith and what I believe is that you're going to see it. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Freaks. Faith is visible, tangible, actionable. It's what we do. Because even the little freaky demons believed And yet, they had no faith in Jesus. Demons believe and they shudder. They hear the name of Jesus and whoa. You know, it's kind of like in the Lion King Mufasa. (laughs) 
Say it again. Mufasa. <laughs> That's what the demons do when they hear the name of Jesus. <laughs> Makes them shudder because they believe in Jesus Christ, but not as Lord and Savior. They believe in the existence. They can't deny it. They know. They know well. In fact, check this out. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 23. says there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. Taunt, taunt. The Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. Down in verse 34 of Mark chapter 1, it says, And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak. Why? Because they knew who he was. Oh, they believed. But they had no faith. The demons believe and shudder. You can't sit there and say, Well, I I believe. I believe in Jesus. Great. So do the demons. What does that mean? Nothing. You acknowledge His existence. Great. That's not faith. Faith is and must be actionable. We learn this from the food example, from the freaks example, that faith is more than belief. We've been over this now several times over the last few months. I know I have come back to this again and again. Maybe it's just me figuring it out finally in my life, but it is more than belief. Faith is trust. Faith is entrusting a life to another. It's not passive acknowledgement that Jesus is or exists. It is active adoration of Jesus Christ. How did Paul put it? 2 Corinthians 5.14 The love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And He died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Active faith. Because I love Jesus, it's going to come out in my life. It must. Faith at work. And then he gives a third example, and that is friends. Food, freaks, and finally, number three, friends. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. The word perfected, teleo, completed, finished. And the scripture was fulfilled, verse 23, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, we need to sit on this just for a minute here. Some see a tension in these words between Yaakov and Paul. Yaakov chapter 2 again, verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Period. Well, in Romans 3.28, Paul said, a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Whoa contradiction. Yaakov says one thing, Paul says the exact opposite, or so it might seem. Glenn's shaking his head, would you just wait for me, I'll get there. I'm trying to hang him out on a limb here. Make him uncomfortable for a second, it's a teaching thing. (laughs) 
No, I mean, it's absolutely true. There, there is no tension. Please, let's let this go. There is no tension between Paul and Yaakov. These two brothers met together and understood each other. You see that in the stories that come out of the book of Acts. They made sense of it in their relationship. They were fine. They weren't at odds. 2,000 years of church tradition and people liking to, you know, to throw division into relationship. That's the problem. But no, they were not saying something different. Listen to it again. Yaakov 2.24, a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Romans 3.28, Paul says, a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. See, Paul adds of the law to works, indicating just as Yaakov already has back in verse 10, that keeping the whole law is impossible. You can't keep the whole law, so you've got to have faith in Jesus. Because by faith in Christ, the law is kept by the law keeper, Jesus. He kept it perfectly, so I trust Him. And He covers, and He redeems. Yaakov is talking about works literally as the dynamic of our faith. You know, the proof of our faith, because I believe, so I do. And and watch this, note this, the Hebrew quote that we see listed here, in verse 23, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Guess where that quote comes from? Note this, Genesis 15, verse 6. Okay? That's where this is said. He believed God and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. So what's the point? Well, the example that he gives in verse 21 was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar. Guess when that happened? Genesis 22. Put that together. Genesis 15 is the quote, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, but it's not till seven chapters later that we see him acting on that faith. What does that mean? It means that God reckoned faith as righteousness, not the work. However, the work proved that the faith was there in the first place. The work, the work is the, the outer workings of the faith. And so we see it playing out in Genesis 22, but we see Him reckoned as righteous in Genesis 15. This is the wonder of faith. I trust in God. I entrust my life to God. And he says, righteous, even before I've done anything. But you better believe Genesis 22 is coming. You better believe in my life there's going to be an offering of sacrifice and trust in the Lord because I believe in Him with all my heart. I trust Him. I have faith in Him. So I'm going to act on that faith. It's an impossibility not to. If you don't act on the faith, you don't have faith. And God knows the heart. He knew Abraham's heart. When Abraham said, I believe you, God said, righteous. Why? Because God knew that that was real faith. He knew what was going to work out. And what was it that worked out? Only one of the most profound pictures of the love of a father and a son and a sacrifice in the entire Hebrew Bible that ultimately was played out on Mount Moriah by God the Father and Christ on the cross. It's faith working out. Faith at work. Faith that is dynamic and real and actionable. But faith always comes first. And that, by the way, is Paul's focus. That righteousness is never earned by works. Righteousness comes of faith. He says in Galatians 3, he also talks about this in Romans 4. But Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says, Are you so foolish? 
Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He says in Galatians 3.5, Does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Same quote that Yaakov uses. Paul would say in Romans chapter 4, verse 23, Now not for Abraham's sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered over because of our transgressions, and was raised because of our justification. So the bottom line here, what Paul's saying is we only get right with God through faith. The faith must come first, and by faith then comes the credit of righteousness. That's Paul's focus. What Yaakov is getting at is then that faith will always show up in what we do. It will always be revealed in our works. It's not works faith, it's just that faith works. It just does. And by such faith, Abraham was called a friend of God. What a marvelous thing. Verse 23, he was called the friend of God. Where was he called the friend of God? Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7, which says, Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? Isaiah 41, verse 8, You, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend. So faith works. Faith in God, trusting God, there's evidence of it that comes out in the lives that we live. And like Abraham, I believe, we become then friends of God. There's another friend, a woman, who's mentioned in verse 25. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. What a marvelous example. Abraham, the father of the faithful, and Rahab, the harlot. And this is now the second time in the New Testament Scriptures that this harlot is lifted up as the shining example of faith. We see Rahab mentioned in uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Here she is again in the letter of Yaakov. Why Rahab? Of all the people in the Hebrew Scriptures, of all the people in the history of Israel, couldn't we have found someone else a little less objectionable? Then Rahab, the harlot. Not only the harlot, but also the Canaanite. Not only the harlot Canaanite, but also a woman who lied to protect the spies. This is not a good person. At least by all human partiality. But according to God, she is a picture of faith. And what's marvelous about Rahab, and, and I think that she's mentioned here and in Hebrews 11, is that faith is not predicated on our past failures, but on our present action. She presently acted in trust, believing that God was God. Though she was a Canaanite, though she had a shady past, she realized as the spies came in, this God of Israel is God, and I want to follow Him. And so she risked her life to do so. 
Leaving harlotry behind, leaving behind past failures, she now trusts in God to be her God and moves forward. And because of her great faith, Rahab is not called a friend of God. (laughs) She's actually called Grammy. She is great times 30 grandma to the Messiah. Matthew chapter 1 verse 5. And again, I think that is wonderful. For the other mention of Rahab in the Scriptures is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. One of five women mentioned, including Mary, and the four preceding Mary were all less than, you know, holy at least by outward appearance. And yet they all are in the genealogy. Why? Because God's not concerned about your past failure. He's concerned with your present faith. Is your faith in Him today? Then what's past is past and done. Now I want to I want to talk about one last thing tonight, and I think it's it's important, especially in the context of what we're covering. But if you continue on with chapter three, verse one, he says, "Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment, or literally a greater condemnation." And there it is. I told you we'd hear that two-word phrase again. There it is. Back in Luke chapter 20, verse 47, referring to the Pharisees, he says they will receive a greater condemnation. And now he says, knowing that those who teach are going to incur a greater condemnation. And I got a little uncomfortable when I saw that. But here's the difference. The Pharisees are receiving a greater condemnation, but the word greater there means literally beyond measure. Their condemnation for seeking the high position and playing partiality and and putting themselves above other people, that is going to receive a condemnation beyond measure. Here, in talking about those who are teachers, it refers to specifically a larger condemnation or a greater condemnation. The word condemnation is the same in both, but with teachers, it's going to be a little more intense than with someone who's not teaching. Which is the point that Yaakov is making. The judgment is going to be more severe than it would be for someone who doesn't teach at all. And this becomes incredibly important. Verse 2. He says, again thankfully, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Hmm. Thankfully, Yaakov here points out human fallibility. Just after saying that teachers are going to incur a stricter judgment, which makes me squirm in my seat, he says, but we all stumble. We are all fallible. The only person who's not fallible is the perfect man who is able to bridle the whole body. Who's that? Jesus Christ is the only perfect man and the only one who is capable of handling the whole thing. The rest of us just do our best, but we are not Jesus. But now watch this. This word bridle literally means to restrain, to guide, or to hold in check. That's why it's translated bridle like what you would think of for a horse. Go back to chapter 1, verse 26. And Yaakov said, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet he does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. 
And where he's about to go now in chapter 3 is absolutely intense and I fear is not taken seriously enough, at least in this season of the church age. He goes on to describe this whole idea of bridling. Verse 3, if we put bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. And then verse 4, look at the ships also. Though they are great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. He says bits, bits need a rider. You put a bit in a horse's mouth, you need a rider to then use that bit to guide and steer the horse. Rudders need a captain. So the rudder's useless unless there's someone working it. So we've got to have a rider, we've got to have a captain, because the tongue can run you off a cliff or steer you into the rocks. But it's even more dangerous than that. In talking about the tongue, verse 5, he says, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, And yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets the fire and sets on fire the course of life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. I was teaching this once to a group of teenagers. And and I brought in a box that I held right in front of me. and And I'm reading this and every now and then... With my finger right behind the box, I shook it a little bit. And I, and I told them, bring it in. I've got something in here that is incredibly dangerous. You know, incredibly vile. Highly poisonous. So you want to stay back. And then I opened the box and I had a big cow tongue. That was sitting in there. The tongue is filled with deadly poison. And this is the third thing we're looking at tonight. And it is the flame of the tongue. The flame of the tongue. Yaakov describes it as a hellish fire. The tongue. Now, again, I I told you, he listened to the teachings of Jesus. He speaks more from the teachings of Jesus than he does from the many references to the Hebrew Scriptures. And this is one of those. No doubt Yaakov had heard at least something like Jesus saying in Matthew 15, 18, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. Jesus said, For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witnesses and slanders. These are the things which defile the man. And they come right off the flame of the tongue. Verse 9, Yaakov says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men. Ever do that on a Sunday morning within a half hour of leaving the church? You've just spent the whole morning blessing the Lord, and then you get behind the wheel and someone cuts you off, and next thing you know you're cursing men. Same tongue, capable of such difference. And he says, man, men who have been made in the likeness of God, by the way, draw back to the favoritism. Look around the foyer on a Sunday morning. Look around the people of this world. They've all been made in the likeness of God. What right have we to be partial? But then he says, from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. I appreciate that about James. Yaakov. I appreciate that he is willing to say it shouldn't be this way. 
You know, it's okay to make judgments like that. It's okay to make sound moral judgments and say, this is not the way it should be. I was told so many times as a young pastor, make sure in your teaching that you don't use the word should. Avoid should. Don't tell people they should be doing something or they ought to be doing something. Really? Well, James does. It ought not be this way. And the truth is, there are things we should do if we are people of Jesus. And there are other things we ought not do if we're followers of Jesus Christ. And if we're really pursuing holiness and righteousness and the goodness of God, pursuing it by His grace, there are shoulds and oughts. And I love that Yaakov doesn't shy away from that. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. He says in verse 11, Does a fountain send out from the same opening fresh and bitter? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? Or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Now listen, with this, what he's doing with the figs and and vines and all that, is he's connecting the tongue to the nature of the speaker. That what the tongue does is just project what is in the nature of the person speaking. Man, this is uncomfortable, but here's the reality. Who you are is going to come out of your mouth. It just is. We call those our embarrassing moments when I blurt out things that I really would rather people had not heard me say because I know deep in my heart of hearts that's me. I don't want them to know the real me. I want them to know the me that looks pretty good. You know, that's worked out and I've got some control and the filter's on. I don't want them to know the idiot who spouts these things. The question is, when it comes to our nature, is it going to be your sin nature or is it going to be your born-again nature? Which one of these is going to speak the most loudly in your life? And this is where our identity in Christ Jesus becomes so important. We talked about that identity a little bit on Sunday morning. Listen, stay with me just a minute longer on this. Your identity in Jesus Christ is more than your personal value. I like to speak to that, and we have recently talked about our value is found in Jesus and in who we are in Jesus. That's when I sense that I am most valuable, but it's bigger than this. My identity in Jesus is far bigger than me. Far more important than how I'm feeling on any given day. He says the tongue is set on fire by hell. Did you catch that? How? Listen, Matthew 25, 41, Jesus describes hell as the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. In John 8, 44, Jesus, referring to the devil, says he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he's a liar and the father of lies. So the tongue of the devil is always going to lie to you. He will not speak truth. He's going to lie. He's going to alter. He's going to shade the truth. That's what he does. That's his nature. He can't do other. He is so ingrained in this lying. And Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 says, The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Well, that's his nature. Now listen closely. In all of this, in this issue of the tongue, 
What is Yaakov driving at here? What is he warning about? Is it gossip? Or, or slander? Or cursing? Or, or bad language? Or an annoying accent? What is it that's coming off the tongue that is such a big deal and such a grave concern to Yaakov? Look back at verse 1 of chapter 3. Let not many of you become teachers. That's the issue. For all of the other applications, and there are plenty of ways that the tongue can be a hellish fire, the most hellish fire of the unbridled tongue burns in the mouth of the false teacher. And this is the problem that worries me in the church today. Not that, not that there are people coming out of seminary intending to be false teachers, but that we so, see so many in the church who just take the Word of God loosely. Who, who use it as a jumping off point and not the grounds of the teaching. False teachers, and it can go in so many directions, and hear me on this, that the false teacher can be the one who doesn't take the Word seriously enough, and it can be the one who sees things in the Word that are not there. You've heard of gematria, which is the biblical numerology, and there's a lot of validity to that, but man, be careful. Bible signs and and the Bible codes. You know, a few years ago in Costco, you could buy Bible codes 1 and Bible codes 2. And I'm here to tell you, most of what was in those books was not true. Looking for things that really aren't there. We have got to take the idea of teaching more seriously. Because first of all, the teacher is going to be judged more harshly. But secondly, it is the false teacher who is speaking with the hellfire of deception. And it's why Paul said in Galatians 1.8, even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we've said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. I spend, and you know this, I spend an inordinate amount of time studying to make sure I know what the words mean and what the, what the word is saying. And I had a lot of notes and, and all of that. And, and I, I, granted, I can be a little uptight about these things. But there's a reason for it. And the reason is I spent much of my youth ministry career flying by the seat of my pants and holding the gospel loosely. And I'm not telling you that I taught heresy back in those days, but I taught pretty loose. And it took a while in my own Christian life and, and maturation to realize this is God's Word. This is not Rick's Word. This is not mine to, to, to sparkle and shine. This is God's Word. And the false teacher is often the one who doesn't even know they're a false teacher. Because they're ignorant to the truth. Well, I heard this. Isn't this true? Well, have you studied it? Revelation 22.18 I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God's going to take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Wow. Let me ask you, do you think God takes His Word seriously? So shouldn't we? This is a power tool. And there are too many babies swinging around power tools. Not recognizing 
the worth and the value and the weight of the Word of God. And by the way, I'll tell you two more things about the Word here. Number one, the Word functions as a bridle. It is a bridle itself. The reason why we continue to have so many verses up is I'm intending that the Word bridle the teaching of the Word. That what I share to you and what I say to you, you can look at it. And it's backed up by, by the Word in every angle. The Word is a bridle. But where the tongue goes unbridled, it can set ablaze and defile. And here's where it gets so serious. It can defile the whole body. The whole body? What body is he talking about? The body of Christ. Look at verse 6. The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of life and is set on fire by hell. The tongue spewing out the fires of false teaching ruins the body. Burns the body. He's not just talking about how words can mess me up personally. He's talking about his concern for the entire church. That's why I began with the synagogue. Hey, thankfully the church is not a building. It's not a synagogue that can be burned down or like the temple destroyed. But we, the ecclesia, we can burn each other. Or be burned by each other. Yes, through cruelty and gossip and slander and cursing and all those things, those are all bad. But the hottest flames are fanned and spread about by false teaching. Now, no doubt you're getting how serious this is. But don't respond this way. Don't go, well, then maybe I shouldn't teach at all. In fact, maybe what we ought to do is avoid teaching altogether. Let's just not be teachers and we'll be cool. Now we need teachers. In fact, it's my intention that this fellowship be about raising up and sending out teachers. What did the Bible tell us? Hebrews 5.12 For by though this time you ought to be teachers. There's an ought for you. Do you realize that every one of you sitting here ought to be a teacher of the Word if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time? Well, not me. I'm not going to be a teacher. You ought to be. You ought to be. It ought to be this way. You should teach. (laughs) We're all called to teach the Word of God. Every one of us. But, 2 Timothy 2.15, we are also called to be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the Word of Truth. Yes, you're to teach, but to teach accurately, not to burn others, whether ignorantly or worse, intentionally, by mishandling the Word of God. Because the reality is, just as faith works in a fellowship, fireworks in a fellowship as well. And it burns. What do we do? I was thinking, even during worship, I hadn't even thought about this until that moment. So I, I, just, I had to grab Cheryl's Bible and I'm trying to look up the verse. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, I think is the answer. To not burning each other with the Word. You know what firefighters will do when they've got a forest fire out of control? They'll create a fire break. They use fire to fight fire. right? And they'll burn out a, a section of road or something else so that when the fire gets there, there's no more fuel and it just dies out. We have a fire break and it is the Word of God. In Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, he says, Your Word is in me like a fire, like a fire in my bones. 
And I can't contain it. In fact, I'm weary of trying to hold it in. And the answer for Jeremiah is, let it out. That we fight fire with fire. The hellish fires of false teaching, we fight with the fire of the Word of God that is in us. The passion for the truth. And by the way, we also have the Holy Spirit who is living water and can quench that false teaching in a heartbeat. And so we teach the Word. And we determine to to let that fire out, the fire of truth, as opposed to the hellfires of deception. And we stand on the rock of faith in Christ Jesus. See, He really is the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone of the Word. He's the cornerstone of our understanding, of our faith. And we stand on Him and we teach His Word by His Spirit for His name's sake. For He is the one who declared, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And Father, I pray that You will teach us to be teachers. Father, teachers who care about everyone who hears the Word. Not playing favorites. And teachers who don't just speak words, but we live this out. We teach by example. We teach in our lives. We live the truth by faith. And we establish, Lord, the flame of the Word of God brightly burning in us to quench all fires of deception. Lord, I pray that You'll seal Your Word in us tonight. Cause us to love each other more, to love You more, and to take Your Word seriously. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand and sing together.